Welcome to the Abbott Loop Community Church Podcast. Enjoy this message from Mark Drake. All right, go ahead and open your Bibles, if you would, please, to Matthew 22. For the last several weeks, by the way, one, of the, one other thing that we do is our podcasts now are, are now available all over the world. And so that's rapidly growing. And we love podcasts. We love them. And one of the things we love about them is that our home church here, we have an ALCC podcast. And so no matter where we are, I get to stay current eating the same spiritual teaching food that you're eating, we get to do that too because of the podcast. And over the last several weeks, I've been listening to Pastor Josh and Michael and Rick and others and Mariah who have been teaching on this idea of let's try it his way. Let's try it Christ's way. The, the, the pretext for this, or the context, understanding that both in Matthew 14 or in, in Proverbs 14 and Proverbs 15 is the statement, there is a way that seems right to a human being. However, the end of that way leads to death or destruction. And the context in both of those places in Proverbs is a list of uh, good things to do and bad things to avoid. And then right in the middle of those lists, there's this statement where human beings come up with their own logic. They come up with their own interpretation. They come up with what they think is the best way to do something apart from God. But, but what we must then do is look to the manufacturer. How many know what it's like to buy something that has to be put together? And after several hours of attempting to put it together, you come across a brilliant idea. Read the instructions, you see. Uh, because the manufacturer knows how this thing will work the very best. And it's sad that our adversary has succeeded in convincing most people that God's commandments are somehow burdensome, he's a killjoy, all that kind of rotten thinking, when in fact God's commandments are given to us for our good, not for his good, but for our good. So life will go best for us. This is why 1 John says his commandments are not burdensome, but his commandments are for our good to keep us in, in, a, in a safe place in our life so that the law of sowing and reaping will work to our benefit and not our detriment. So for the last several weeks, uh, a variety of the teachers and pastors here have been teaching on this idea of do it his way, thus following his footsteps, as Peter writes in 1 Peter, that he has given us an example so that we would follow in his footsteps. So I want to deal with this part of that idea today, and that is, what did Jesus say was the greatest commandment? What did Jesus say was the single most important thing that you and I should choose to do in our lives? And the answer is actually given to us in Matthew 22. Now, it's important to understand the context and the setting when we read things in the Bible. If we're really going to understand what this meant to a first century reader, then we have to put ourselves and our minds in the place of a first century reader. And What would this mean to them? So we have to have a little bit of history, a little bit of understanding. Matthew 22 actually takes place in the last week of Jesus' natural life leading up to the night that he was betrayed and ultimately crucified. This particular story actually takes place probably on Tuesday of that last week leading up to what we call the Last Supper, which was the night before the Sabbath. It was the night of preparation when Jesus met in the upstairs banquet hall, the upper room. They didn't call it that. We call it that because 
the upstairs banquet room at Mark's mom and dad's house that they rent out for stuff doesn't sound nearly as spiritual as the upper room. So we call it the upper room, and we call it the Last Supper. If they would have really realized this was the Last Supper, they would have paid a lot more attention. And, of course, Linda knows that I'm going to this, and and she just hates this, but I'm going to do it anyway. There is something that Jesus said at the Last Supper that's not recorded in the Bible, but I have it on good authority that he did indeed say this. He said at one point during the night, look, guys, if you all want to be in the painting, everybody has to sit on this side of the table. Okay, my grandchildren love that joke. I'm telling you, they love it. All right. So on Tuesday of that week, Jesus has already been bombarded. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, the two ruling religious groups in first century Judaism, are, are both angry and want to kill Jesus. And one of the reasons is because three, three days before this, we had what is referred to as the triumphal entry when Jesus came into the city, and it seemed like the whole city turned out crying, Hosanna, this is our king. That was just a week before they all began to cry out, crucify him, crucify him. The Pharisees are already negotiating with Judas to betray Christ. This is already happening. So they're constantly arguing with him and challenging him. So we read in Matthew 22. Now remember, this is Tuesday before the Last Supper on Thursday evening in his betrayal and then ultimately his crucifixion. But when, the, Verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees with his reply, they met together to question him again. One of them, an expert in religious law, tried to trap him with this question. And that's important. Tried to trap him with this question. They're trying desperately to disprove him in front of the people because they're terrified that the people are going to continue to grow in numbers who are following him. So he tried to trap him with this question. Here's the question. Teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important, love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. Now, some very important things to understand about this. If we're going to learn to live our lives if following in his steps, mimicking his example, then we're going to have to understand what he meant when he said this because it would seem to me that his response would have been, what's the greatest commandment? Well, first of all, we, I would think we have 10 to pick from. But in fact, Jesus doesn't pick any of them. This statement, love the Lord your God with all your heart, is not in the Ten Commandments. It is not in the Ten Commandments. Jesus did not pick any of those. There's a reason why. I would think that if he wouldn't pick any of these ten, that he would say, well, the most important commandment is to obey the Lord your God. Obey him. We can certainly find that in the Old Testament all the way through. But he doesn't say that either. He says what at first blush really seems to be rather strange. Love God. That's it. That's the greatest commandment. And as a result of that, love your neighbor as you love yourself. That's it. Well, wait a minute. That that, 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 that can't be it. That can't be the most important. I mean, just love him. That, I want to suggest to you that Jesus is previewing the coming of the new covenant. 
Because the essence of the new covenant is that God is going to put his own spirit. This is Ezekiel 11, Ezekiel 36, and Jeremiah 31. God is going to put his very own spirit inside of you, and he, living in you, will enable you to obey him and keep his commandments. So what's the most important thing about that statement? Obey him? No, that's the result. The most important statement is what will cause the result. See, I just came from seven days in the hospital and meeting with doctors, and when I left the hospital, the doctor did not say, okay, Mr. Drake, here's the most important thing, get well. That's not what he said. He said, Mr. Drake, here's the most important thing, take your medicine. Because telling me to get well would be very frustrating. If I could do that on my own, I wouldn't be charged what the hospital charged me. I can't do that on my own. On the other hand, if I take my medicine, it will cause me to get well. He doesn't have to put my focus on getting well, just put my focus on what will cause it. Are you there? What's the most important command? Obey God. No, no, no. Obeying God is the result of something else. And Jesus says, here is the most important thing. Love God. Now, when he says love God, he's using a very specific word. And, and this is really, I mean, a lot of us, a lot of people way smarter than me have asked this question for a long time. Why almost all of our English translations do this? They translate four different Greek words that describe four different kinds of love but in our English translation, they all come out love. In fact, there are four words. Now, there are far more than that in the, in the first century Greek. But uh, in, in the scripture, there are four different ways or four different Greek words that come out just love in our English translation. One is storge, which it means family love, familial love. Uh, the other is eros, which means romantic love. It does not mean erotic or erotica in a sensual way, although we have made it now to mean that. But the love between a husband and a wife, for example, is eros, love, and, and it's godly unless you make it ungodly. The other is phileo. Phileo is where we, the root from which we get the word Philadelphia. It means brotherly love, and Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, the, 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 the name of this, or the, the uh, my mind just went blank. It's the city of brotherly love. That's the, uh, my mind just went blank. Help me, Michael. You're sitting up here in the front for this very reason. I've been sick, dude. Come on. Would you? Anyway, it's called the city of brotherly love, although if you've ever been there, you know there's not very much of that on the streets. But it's called that because of the name Philadelphia. It comes from the Greek word phileo, which means brotherly love. The fourth is the one that Jesus uses, the one that's used overwhelmingly in the Scripture, especially in the New Testament, which is agape. Agape is a very different kind of love from all the, the other kinds of love can be produced by human intention, by human will, by human effort. But this word, which is overwhelmed, over 200 times used and translated love in the scripture, agape is extremely different, completely different from the other words. Now, our dilemma is this. We say love. So I love, I love, I love my wife. I love my kids. 
I love to fly fish. And I love God. But see, we intuitively know that all of those words, even though it's love, we mean something different. The problem is, when we read the Scripture, by the way, if you want a, a good word study, uh, get a hold or Google it or get, get, get a hold of some material about the conversation that Jesus and Peter have. My newest book, which will be released in May, called Running on Empty, How Weakness and Failure Can Unleash the Transforming Power of Grace, is all about this story of Peter swearing, swearing, swearing he will not deny the Lord. And Jesus saying, Peter, shut up and listen to me. You're going to curse and deny me three times before tomorrow morning. No, I won't. No, I won't. Shut up, Peter. Listen to me. If you'll listen to me, this will all turn out for your good. You're going to make it a lot harder than this. Then they have the conversation after the resurrection. Peter, do you love me? Remember this conversation? Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Peter, do you love me? What in the world's going on? What's going on is Jesus says, Peter, do you agape me? And Peter says, well, actually, Lord, I phileo you. And understanding Peter is finally telling the truth. No, I do not love you with a godly undying love. I've already proven that. I do love you with a human brotherly love. And without understanding that, that conversation doesn't make any sense. Now, this word agape is very, very important because the word agape literally means, when we define it correctly, God's love, divine love, a love that must be generated by the power of the Spirit, love that cannot be generated from human effort. The other definitions of the word love, human beings, whether they're saved or not, can produce that. Unsaved people can have brotherly love. That's something a God has put into creation. But agape is a divine love. It comes from God into us and then manifests itself through us. When Paul writes in Galatians 5.22, now the fruit of the Spirit is love. That word is agape. Over 200 times in the New Testament, the word for love is agape. It is a, every time you see that, say to yourself, this is a love that comes from God into a believer, into a, a person who's been regenerated, into a person who's been born again, comes into him by the Spirit and then works through that person and manifests to other people. That's agape love. Agape love is always uh, 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 identified in that it is sacrificial. It is unselfish. Agape love is what prompted Jesus to, 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 to endure all the human suffering of the world and ultimately die, what motivated him and empowered him to do it was agape, to sacrifice himself for you, for me. That was what motivated and empowered him to do that. Because Paul says in Philippians 2 that though he was God, he temporarily laid aside his, let's say, his advantage of being God. He temporarily laid that advantage aside, came as flesh, and had to depend on the Spirit to empower him to do what he did and to not do what he didn't do, just like you and I have to do. He did that to fully identify with us. Now, what motivated him was agape. For God agape the world so much that he gave his only son. This is the word agape. and It is always identified by the sacrifice that it is willing and empowered to make for the good of others, even when it hurts me. Even when it hurt Jesus, he did it on our behalf. He did not do it for himself. He did it for us because he, he knew what the outcome would be if he was willing to do this. So 
this is agape love. And so when he was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He says, the greatest commandment is to agape God with all your heart, soul, and mind to do that. Now, let's be honest. Just, just at least for a moment here, let's be honest. <laughs> we just had a wonderful time in worship together. And there is a great temptation in all of us, certainly in me. During times of worship, there is a great temptation for me to say what I used to say. God, I love you with my whole heart. Now, in an attempt to be honest with God, my worship is more like, God, I really love you a lot. Uh, more now than before. So help me to love you more. You know what I'm talking about? I, I, want, I want to love you with my whole heart, but, but that's not the truth yet. It will be, but it's not yet. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm there, I'm closer there than I was before. But this is a journey for me. And I have to be honest with you about this. But this, this idea of agape is important because, as we said earlier, Jesus did not say the greatest commandment is obey God. Because obeying God is the result of something else. It's the same thing as the doctor saying to a sick person, well, get well. Well, thank you very much. I already would like to do that, but I couldn't, which is why I'm coming here to you. Because I need the cause and effect. The effect is the ability to obey. The cause is something else. Now, oddly enough, maybe to us, Jesus said the cause is love God. If you will love God, if you will agape God, if you will love God with his own divine love, that will enable you to obey him. It's cause and effect. Now, the problem is, since agape love is God's love, it's divine love, how can I love him with his love? How can I do that? The answer is, I have to be receiving it from him. I have to be experiencing it from him. Now, by the way, Jesus said this on Tuesday. On Thursday night with his own guy sitting around the table, he raised the bar even higher because he said, love God, and the second is like this, and love your neighbor as yourself. But sitting around the table in John, uh, 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 John 14 or 13, Jesus says, now I'm giving you a new commandment, and that is that you love one another as I have loved you. Now, let me tell you, the crucifixion took place the next day. And they understood on a whole new level what it meant to love each other as Christ has loved us. When they watched Jesus take the pain of the entire world upon his own physical body and suffer even unto death. And those words had to have echoed in their mind. That's the way you want us to love each other? How in the world can we do that? We're not able to do that unless you come and do it in us and do it through us. That was the preview of the new covenant. Why? Because the new covenant is not about forgiveness. God has offered any human being forgiveness who wanted it from the Garden of Eden on down. When we talk about the law, the law is filled with sacrifices to gain forgiveness for the areas in which I fail to obey. That's God's love at work right there. That God gives a commandment that he knows we're not going to be able to always keep, so he builds forgiveness right into it. But that is not the new covenant. That's just the everlasting mercy of the heart of God. What then is the new covenant? Paul described it as Christ living in you, the hope of glory. 
The new covenant is no longer will the Holy Spirit be with you occasionally as it was in the Old Testament. But the Holy Spirit is going to come and live in you. And as he lives in you, he's going to live through you. That's why we go to Galatians 5.22. Now, the fruit of the Spirit. Where's the Spirit living? In us. Now, the fruit of the one who's living in us, the very first one is agape. So God's love comes into us by the entrance of the Spirit. And suddenly, God's presence in the world changes. You know, you go back to the Garden of Eden. God's presence came into the garden. During the time of Moses and the Israelites, God's presence came into the tabernacle. And it was evidenced by the fire and the cloud. The time of Solomon's temple, God's presence was in the holy place. And they had to come there in order to interact with God's presence. After that temple was destroyed, Nehemiah and Ezra and others, Zerubbabel and others come together and they rebuild the temple. And again, God's presence is there. But when Jesus was crucified, a miracle took place. At the moment that he gave up his spirit to the Father, the Bible says that this huge 60-foot curtain uh, that was triple and quadruple uh, uh, thicknesses hanging in in the temple, covering the holiest of holies, was suddenly miraculously torn from the top to the bottom, ripped in half. And you know what they found? The holiest place was empty. God wasn't there anymore. Why not? Because God now takes up residence in those who believe. If you wanted to contact God's presence under the old covenant, you had to go to the location on earth where it resided. If you want to contact God's presence now, go to a believer because you have become God's address on the earth. Certainly we understand that God is omnipresent. He's everywhere at all times. But he manifests his presence into the old covenant in the holy place. In the new covenant, you are the holy place. You are the temple of the Spirit. So when the Spirit of God comes into us, his love comes into us. Now, it has to. It has to. There's no other choice, and here's why. Agape is God's own DNA. Agape is what God is. You say, wait a minute. Well, that's your, okay, I don't, I don't get that. All right. John writes in his first epistle, 1 John. He simply says it this way. God is agape, love. God is. Now, notice he does not say God has as one of his many attributes agape love. That's not what he says. He says God actually is agape love. That's what he is. Now, that should be a great assurance to us because if God has agape as one of his many attributes, he can choose to act out of it or not depending on our behavior. But if God is agape love, then no matter what he does, has to come out of his agape love, which means that when the Old Testament prophets say his love is from everlasting to everlasting, they really meant it. That's what he is. So every encounter and interaction with him comes through his love. Now, when he comes to live in us by the Spirit, then his agape love, his own DNA spiritually, comes into us. Now, when we begin to trust in that, then it becomes a cause and effect. Love God with all your heart. Why? Well, one reason is because by doing that, you will grow in your enablement to obey him. 
So rather than focusing on what we obey, see, Jesus could have picked one of the do's or don'ts from the Ten Commandments. But the whole point, he says, now listen to these words. I want to read this to you again. This is the last thing he said in the portion that we read. This is Matthew uh, 22, 40. Listen to this. The entire law, the entire law, and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. Love God. When you begin to do that, the entire law starts being fulfilled in you. All the demands of the prophets throughout all the Old Testament. We are enabled to begin to walk in fulfillment of those as we're, it's cause and effect. It's cause and effect. Jesus talked about it in John 15, again, sitting around the table in the upper room. I am the vine, you are the branches. The result will be much fruit. But if you focus on the fruit, you will always be frustrated trying to pop out fruit by your own effort. What should the branch focus on? Its connection to the vine. It's cause and effect. Strengthen your connection with the vine, and what will be the natural result? Fruit. You don't have to think about the end result. Think about what causes it. Focus on the, 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 the beginning. The end will take care of itself. It will result in what it needs to result. Paul explained this to Gentiles who didn't know any of the Ten Commandments. See, in, in, in the first century, I mean, we... You know, we get the feeling like if you go anywhere in the world and you say Jew or Israel or the Ten Commandments from Moses, people know what you're talking about. That wasn't that way in Paul's day. 95% of the adults who lived in the first century Roman Empire could not read. They couldn't read. So if you lived anywhere other than pretty close to this little bitty tiny strip of mostly desert area called Israel or Palestine, you wouldn't have known anything about the Jewish religion. You wouldn't have known anything about the Ten Commandments. Now, I find this very in, 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 insightful. I find this very insightful when I ask this question. How many times in the epistles, written by Peter, Paul, James, John, how many times in the epistles are the Ten Commandments ever listed? The answer is none. They are never listed. Never. In fact, in one place, Paul says, in Romans, he says, now, as to the commandments, he's writing to the church at Rome, 99% Gentile uh, believers in the church at Rome at that time. He's writing to them and he says, now, as to the commandments, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not lie. And if there are any others, this, this guy is an expert on the Jewish law. And, and instead of enumerating him, he says, and if there are any others, they are all fulfilled in this. Agape love does no harm to his neighbor. And to, to listen to this, Galatians 6.3, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you fulfill the law of Christ. So what Paul understood was that if he just kept listing what they shouldn't do, they would focus on the wrong thing. They would not focus on the cure, but they would focus on the illness. And our focus has to be on the cure. Now, we're given instructions in all the epistles of things to do and not do, but that always comes out of how do we accomplish that? Jesus said we accomplish it by allowing agape love to work in our lives. Now, we have to do this. 
we have to ask the question, all right, if, if, if loving God with all our hearts then causes this miracle to work inside of us, and I get, you know, I, 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 I get email and Facebook things where people say, you know, I think you're teaching heresy. You tell people, just love God, love God. That's all you're ever talking about. Just love God, love God. Trust in grace, just trust in grace. Why, why don't you teach about obedience, all that kind of stuff? So, no, you, obviously, you're not listening to the whole thing, you know? I don't, I, I mean, that's like saying to a doctor, all you ever talk about is be well, be well. That's all you ever talk about, be well, be well. Take your medicine. That's all you ever talk about. Well, it's because the doctor knows that if you take the medicine, it'll produce the right result. I mean, that's, but, but, and of course, Jesus knows it even more perfectly, that if we agape God, I mean, that, that that's what this is all about, is to be sanctifying us, conforming us to the image of his son, growing the image of Christ in us, flowing through us in the fruit of the spirit. That's what this is all about. But the question is no longer what, but how. I mean, doesn't it frustrate you as if all you're ever told is what, but nobody ever tells you How? I think over the early years of my ministry, I did a really good job of telling people what. I did a terrible job of telling people how. So how? How do I become more like Jesus? Agape God. Okay, well, how do I do that? I wanna, how many want to love God more? You want to love God more? Well, I'll tell you what not to do. Don't grunt and groan and try to love God more. Don't do that. Don't promise God you're going to love him more. Don't do that. Go back to the beginning and ask yourself this question. How did I start loving God? How did that start in me? I wasn't born that way. If you think I'm kidding, go back and look in the nursery right now. They weren't born to love each other. They were born to say no and mine. That's why we need to be regenerated, made alive from the death of our sins and transgressions and made alive by the Spirit. So ask yourself the question, how did I start loving God? Now, John gives us the answer in 1 John. We love him because he first loved us. So what caused us to start loving God? A revelation somehow that he truly loves us right now, right now, right now. Not someday, but right now. That revelation caused us to respond. Well, if getting a beginning revelation of God's love for you enables you to respond to love him back, the way to love him more is to keep increasing your ability to comprehend how much he loves you. So there you go. So those of you that might say, all he ever talks about is love God. I want him to talk about quit treating your husband so bad. Okay, quit treating your husband so bad. Treat your wife better. There you go. All right, that's my marriage sermon right there. Or agape God, and he will empower you to agape your husband to agape your wife. Now, if you don't want to agape your husband or your wife, then your problem is you're not agapeing God. You're not loving him. You're not responding to the revelation of his love. So the Apostle Paul writes these words, teaching people in Ephesus how to grow their love, how to grow their love for God. Since love empowers us to obey his presence in us by the Spirit. So Paul says this, Ephesians 3, 16. 
I pray that from his glorious unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Your roots will go down deep into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, how deep is His love for us. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to ever fully understand. Then, then, when you grow in your understanding of God's love for you, then you will be made complete. As you grow in your understanding of how much God loves you, then you will be made complete and strong in the fullness of life and power that comes from God. I want you to close your eyes for a minute. And I want you to imagine that we're sitting in that upper room along with those guys. And we have just heard Jesus say, guys, before tonight is over, you will all fall away from me. I want you to imagine that for a minute. We're sitting around that table like his men were. This is before Jesus dies. So this is before they're given eternal forgiveness. This is before the Spirit has come into them. This is before they've been truly converted. It's before they've been miraculously regenerated. And they've just been told a, a, a very painful truth about themselves, that they are all going to fail before the night is over. As I read these next words, I pray the Holy Spirit will make them living words to increase your comprehension of how much God actually loves you right now in your weakness, in your failure. Listen to these words. I have spoken of these things in matters of, in figures of speech, but soon I will stop speaking figuratively and I will tell you plainly all about the Father. Then you will ask in my name, but I am not saying I will ask the Father on your behalf because the Father himself loves you dearly because you love me and you believe that I came from the Father. I'm going to go back to the Father, but when I do, you're not going to have to have me ask for you. Because the Father Himself, love present tense, right now, the Father loves you. Oh, before the night's over, you're going to fall away. All of you are. You're going to blow it big time. But the Father, right now, the Father Himself loves you. May the written word become the living word for you right now. Listen to this. The glory which you have given me, Father, this is Jesus praying in the garden. The glory you've given me, I've given them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent them. And the world may know that you love them even as you love me. As you sit here right now with your eyes closed, blotting out everything else, I want you to begin to mull over in your mind right now. The Father loves me the same way he loves Jesus. He's not going to when I'm fully perfected. He loves me right now. The way he loves 
There is no difference in the amount of love that the Father has for the Son and the Father has for you. Right now, knowing you're going to fail several times before your life is over, may the written word become the living word inside of us. Paul writes and says, You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions, yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. And as a result, he has brought you into his own presence, and you are now holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. You are right now holy and blameless without a single fault in the heart and mind of your Father because of agape, because of His divine, divine love at work inside you. Mull that over in your mind. He loves me just like He loves you. Listen, if you've not surrendered the ownership of your life to Christ yet, my goodness, there's no better time to do that than right now. Because He loves you. He agapes you so much that He offered His only Son on your behalf. And if you have become His child through the new birth, there's a miracle going on inside of you right now. That miracle will increase in intensity and result the more you comprehend how deeply He loves you. Now, open your eyes and look up at me here just for a moment. And listen to these final words from John. We know and we rely on His love for us. Because God is love. Whoever loves, whoever lives in love, lives in God and God in Him. Now, this is not human love. This is not pretty flowers and butterflies. And, oh, I feel warm and fuzzy. This is agape. That doesn't come unless you've given ownership of your life to Him and His Spirit has come to live in you. Then you're living in agape love. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we have confidence in the day of judgment because in this world, we are like Him. There is no fear in agape love. But perfect agape love drives out fear. As you said here right now, let agape just wash fear about how you're going to take care of yourself tomorrow right out of it, just right now. Because you're more valuable to the Father than anything else in creation, he says. You're more valuable than anything else created, he says. And his love for you will wash the fear right, right out of your mind, right out of your emotions. Perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. If you're sitting here, you are a believer, but you're struggling with serious areas of fear in your life. I got really good news. The outpouring of agape love from the Holy Spirit into you will drive out all of those fears. It will wash those fears out. 
Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this message, please connect with us at abbottloop.org and like us on Facebook. Services in Anchorage, Alaska are at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. We hope to see you soon.